good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are today, I'm Ali Amadasu, and you're listening to the latest episode of Cloud Unfiltered. I got to tell you, we have a lot of interesting and accomplished guests on our show, but today we have one of the even more interesting and more accomplished. I'd go so far as to say I might even be intimidated by this guest, although he seems like a lovely human being. His list of accomplishments is lengthy and impressive. His name is Simon Crosby. He's the CTO of Swim.ai. But that's not the only reason you may know him. Um, in fact, you probably know him as the co-founder and CTO of Zenforce. You may know him as the co-founder and CTO of Bromium. Um, he's been a principal engineer at Intel. He's a University of Cambridge faculty member, just to name a few of the very interesting things he's done in his past. I'd like to uh, welcome you today, Simon. Thank you so much for joining us. Gosh, thank you for having me. It's a great privilege. <laughs> and as always, I'm accompanied by my very impressive, on his in his own right, uh, co-host Pete Johnson of Cisco. Hey, Ali. Good to be on, as always. You you always get intimidated by the PhDs. You so shouldn't. You're right. That's funny that you remember that. The last guest that I was intimidated by was a PhD as well. Something yeah, that about Patrick that throws me. Right, and he was he's, he was just a sweet guy, and I'm sure Simon's going to be the same. <laughs> That's right. I was intimidated by our last PhD. Something about it throws me. I don't know what that says about my educational experience. But uh, before we go into into the, the many questions Pete and I have stacked up for you today, um, you know what I thought was interesting in reading about your past, Simon, and, and the, the many things you've done is how ZenSource and the Zen Hypervisor and all that, a lot of the, what you've done has contributed to kind of founding of the cloud that we know today. How is how are some of the things you've done connect to Amazon? Yeah, so um, thank you. That's uh, very generous of you. We built the Zen Hypervisor, and <clears throat> pretty soon after we started ZenSource, Amazon um, took it on and started built AWS. The CTO there is Werner Vogels, who's a good friend, and um, so we were very happy to see them using it in that context. Of course, it it went wild from there. And the funny consequence of that was that we as ZenSource ended up helping Microsoft build Hyper-V um, to catch up with Amazon, which was kind of weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Hyper-V Hyper bears an enormous amount of architectural similarity to Zen as a result. Um, and that was fun. And then subsequently, um, at Bromium, we built this additional layer in the hypervisor, which was allowing us to use hardware isolation on CPUs, so VMs, um, to isolate applications running on an OS. So, and our use case was individual pages on the web or every connection, sorry, every document you open or every attachment. And that was primarily a security argument. But that turned into um, Hyper-V containers, which is used for containerization on Azure. So what they do is they spin up a new micro VM per containerized workload running in Azure. And then we spent some time with the um, AWS crew again, and that recently emerged as micro virtualization in AWS, which they use for Amazon Lambda. Um, so every time you spin up a container or a Lambda workload gets running. It is in a hardware isolated container uh, called the MicroVM. So it's been fun. It Fire sounds cracker. like it's been fun. And, and, and I, I mean, with all this accomplishment, I have to wonder, 
was there a point at which you just thought, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of knocked it out of the park as far as uh, technology, you know, contributing to the, to the world's technology. I'm just going to hang it up and, Actually, and rest. You know, the funny thing about hypervisors is they're very small. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you could, and they, and they address a, a point in time need, both for virtualization and for isolation. But my goodness, um, you know, the, the application stack and the uses of cloud and the uses of edge computing are so much more profound. And I feel as though I'm just starting my journey and really just starting to learn. So all I'm good at doing is throwing away lines of code. <laughs> so you, you actually gave me a nice segue. You know, in, in learning about Swim AI, um, I, I came to understand that it's about, you know, AI at the edge. And what my big question is, is, is why is there a need for that? Why, what got you interested in Swim AI and why do we need, why do we need this at the edge? Yeah, cool. So, so you know, sadly, every conversation about edge computing always ends up trying to define edge. So if you won't mind, if you don't mind, I'd like to go there first. I'd, I'd like to, I'd like us to think of cloud as a set of abstractions, which we're all increasingly comfortable with. And I'd like us to think of edge as being a different set of abstractions. That is, edge is not a place. It's not embedding, it's not physical location or anything else. It's how you process stuff. And in particular, edge computing is data-driven. So typically, when data arrives, you compute. And that's quite different than many of the abstractions which we use in the cloud. Anyway, we can dig into that in more detail. Edge and the need to execute application logic close to where data is produced in the context of some need for real-time responses is, an, is a growing need. So, you know, I'm really interested in the topic which is more, more closely aligned with stopping the car before it hits a pedestrian. <laughs> you know, rather than, say, learning to optimize some, you know, some function for production over time, which can be done by consuming data on a relatively slow time scale. So edge computing that's related to real-time data processing and real-time responses either to humans driven by humans or applications is an emerging and very important category. I'd agree. We've we've had some interesting guests on in the past who have talked about edge and and <laughs> they would there would be some interesting discussions about that definition you provided. We've some had some that are very convinced that it can be measured in milliseconds and uh, others that would measure it by device. So uh, I think you're the first one who's defined it this way. Pete, would you agree? Yeah, I would. And I don't, I, I mean, it's early enough in this game that, that there's multiple correct definitions that are going to converge eventually to a generally accepted one, just like, you know, just like REST APIs used to have a competitor in SOAP that nobody talks about anymore, but it was a thing for a while. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely agree with that. I, I just, I think this is a useful thing to think about in for looking forward. So ARM is now shipping 20 billion devices a year. And if you look at other processor producers, let's just double that or make it or triple right. it. Okay, how are those devices going to get smart? They're not going to get smart by people sitting in the cloud learning, well, building models, training them, learning stuff, and then pushing them to the edge. 
It's just not going to happen. Okay. Why is that? Too many devices? Too many devices, too diverse uh, a set of environments. And so my view is that these devices will get smart on the basis of learning on their own data. Learning on the fly, forming uh -huh. theories, and then uh, observing the world, and then matching up their theories to match the world around them. Pretty much the way you learn, okay? And so, it, um, you know, you don't outsource your brain in terms of deciding what to have for breakfast. You know, you figure it out over time. And you don't need to watch the big data movie called All the Breakfasts I've Ever Eaten. Because <laughs> you like, you know, brand muffins or whatever it happens to be. So I think in, in, in this future world where there is pervasive compute, there is so much compute that there are too few humans to build models, to build models. In fact, there are too few humans to write code. And data will write the application. Ooh, there's a scary one for you. That is a scary one. You're saying people won't be necessary to write the to write the software? No, people will be people will absolutely be necessary to keep this whole zoo under control. Um, but I would like to posit the following crazy idea. If you let's assume you're a little bit familiar with the notion of deep learning and a neural network. If data builds the weights in the neural network, that is, if we learn on the fly, mm -hmm. self-train, and reinforce that learning by looking at what happened and, and revising our estimates and everything else. In effect, the trained neural network, trained by data, is a program. You don't really understand it, and, and there's a huge amount of work to be done to understand causality and to be able to debug these things and predict why they actually hit the pedestrian and all that stuff. But ultimately, the weights in this neural network are a program because given inputs, they will tell you what the output will be, which is some computation about the world. Okay? So yep. the world in the future is, a, is one in which these neural networks become self-training and they base their predictions um, on their entire experience past. And so what will that allow? Will that allow for faster processing? What problem is it going to solve? Just It'll allow us to do things which are currently absolutely infeasible. And just a couple of amusing ones. Um, Swim does a bunch of smart city work, and I mention it only because of the data, the amounts of data are staggering. The city of Palo Alto in California produces more data than all of Twitter. And so for each to, to predict five minutes, two or five minutes into the future for every intersection in that city requires a vast amount of data to be consumed, processed, and so on. If you try to do it in AWS using Lambda and all the machinery up there, all of which is fabulous stuff, you're in for about six, $7,000 per month. Whereas if you just do it on an NVIDIA Jetson, you're 200 bucks done forever. Now, is that possible today? Absolutely. And in fact, let me, let me amp it up a cycle or two. The city of Las Vegas is closer to 100 terabytes a day. Okay. And, and, you know, we're just rolling out in Houston and other big cities, and it will be worse. So the, the key thing for people to realize is that the, both the legacy world 
and the coming world will produce vast amounts of information. And by assuming that we're going to store this in the cloud and then process it, we're completely mistaking ourselves because there's no way we can keep up. Second, by assuming we'll process it in the cloud, you simply cannot afford to do that. Third, there are many abstractions in the cloud which actively serve to, well, the hindrances. So many of the things which make cloud great serve as real hindrances in the processing of vast amounts of real-time data. Interesting. You do not just say one provocative thing. You have many provocative things to say. <laughs> and, um, Sorry. No, no, that's wild. Um, Pete, I, I want to allow you um, some time to yeah. ask questions of Simon. So that, that last one makes me think of, you know, this notion of all things that are centralized become decentralized and vice versa over time and these <laughs> technologies that we've seen in the tech industry over the last, you know, 50 plus years is what, me, what makes me think of that. Yeah. Um, but I want yeah. I, I wanted to cite back to you a, a, a passage from that same Palo Alto traffic case study that you can find on the swim.ai website. It's a fascinating read. Um, there's a sentence in there I wanted to ask you about. So it, it reads, swim applications start with the building of web agents, self-contained yep. objects that manage their own data streams, possess individual logic, and continuously communicate with their state to any subscriber. So that, right. that to me is kind of the core new concept that you have this thing that you're calling a web agent and, and it's a very different animal. So can, so can you talk about like, okay, where does sure. that run and who's responsible for telling it what to do and what's its life cycle look like? Sure, thank you. So think of Swim as being a bit like LinkedIn for things. Okay, um, so what I mean there, and LinkedIn, or indeed Facebook, you as a human hop on there and you say what you like and build the graph. Okay, so you say, I know these people and behind that, you're, behind that the application links you in some way, right? Right, so in some social graph. You actively build the graph. So in the Swim world view, data builds graph. So in say, let's just talk traffic, you use that as an example. Every intersection probably has 60 to 80 sensors, but intersections are adjacent to each other and they're linked on a real world map, right? And so as data arrives, Swim is going to build a graph in which everything which is a source of information is represented by an active object, a web agent, which actively processes and stately may represent the state of that thing. And Swim itself is aware of containment and notions of adjacency, for example, like geofences and, and other map constructs. And so Swim is going to build a graph of all of these little objects and their relationships to each other in the real world. Every single one of them is going to process its own data and statefully mirror the state of the real-world source of data, okay? So a swimmer actively builds that graph um, of potentially millions of independent little agents, each of which is attempting to represent the real-world state of a thing, okay? And does that purely from the data. And then these things collaborate. So they link to each other 
to solve problems. So, for example, digital twins of intersections, these little Asian bridges represent intersections, linked to each other based on proximity. So I could say all, if, to predict their future, they should link to all other digital twins of intersections within a thousand yard radius and then learn, okay? So the learning then is, 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 is a particular form of analytics that I want to apply to that data stream. But the notion of linking is essentially allowing me to perform computation in the graph. So as the data flows into this graph, the computation will occur in the graph. And so each one of these things will compute. The net result is that each of my web agents, which represents a digital twin, well, which is a digital twin of an intersection, is going to learn for itself. Notice this is a very different notion of learning than, say, having a data scientist build a model of Palo Alto right. and attempt to solve it. Okay, train that model and solve it. It's constructive. Constructive in the sense that having written this software once, and it's only about 100 lines of code, this same code will work in Houston, in Jacksonville, and Las Vegas. It will just build the model, self-train it, and work. Okay, and that's extraordinarily powerful because there's another class of humans we're in, in great shortage of, and that's data scientists and people who know how to build models, train them, and deploy them to the edge. So, a world which is constructive is one in which these little digital twins, web agents statefully evolve at the edge to accurately represent the real world and then collaborate to solve interesting problems such as learning prediction analysis, running queries, or any other form of computation you would want. Very cool. Allie, why are you intimidated by that? I don't get it. <laughs> right, no reason. I actually did so, have kind of, uh, oh, sorry, Pete. I had one ahead. question that came up during that. Can I interrupt? Yeah, go for it. If you're right, if you're you're creating something that that can you know uh, learn and and make intelligent decisions, and you're you're talking about the complexity of it, what kind of person writes the software that is capable of doing all this, and what language do they use? Yeah, so that's the key point. I think the point is we have to make it really simple for humans to describe goals and problems to be solved by these little agents of theirs, right? And so in our case, it's Java. We use Java because it's a common skill set and also because it allows us to use any processor architecture for the same code, whether it's x86 or ARM or whatever. And it also makes us independent of what physical location we're running in. And so the problem, which is, you know, you are, if I make you a digital twin or a web agent for an intersection, um, go learn on your data and those your peers that are near you within a thousand yards. That's a that's a hundred lines of code. Now, to get around that, what that does, it it lets me get off this horrible problem of saving all the data, training all the training some model or getting a person to build the model for me, training it and then deploying it to the edge. It also gets me off the hook of some other major problems in learning, in particular overfitting and underfitting. So often if you have centrally trained models, they try and come up with this notion of how would a generic intersection behave given this data. 
In my approach, we don't care. I care only about the intersection of, you know, University Avenue and Middlefield, not about University and High. And so that model, which, so every single one of these digital twins of an intersection is going to be learning for itself. It's a much simpler model um, and peculiar to that particular location. And it's not intended to apply anywhere else. So the notions of accuracy around bias, underfitting and overfitting just don't apply. And they can be extraordinarily accurate because they run 24 by 7. They run on data all the time. And by now, some of our predictors, in, for example, in Palo Alto, they're, they've had more than, a, more than a billion training cycles. Okay. So well, I can imagine if it's, if it's monitoring um, middle field and uh, university. <laughs> That's a busy intersection. Yeah. And we, you know, we see absolutely every event from every car going over every inroad loop in Palo Alto, and we see it and predict in real time. So, uh, and we're pretty good at it now. And so, what happens is everyone these intersections streams as predictions to an API, which is held in the cloud and delivered via Microsoft Azure to subscribers. And so, the subscribers are folks who might want to make better routing decisions for their vehicles. So they can look ahead. So it would be people like uh, Uber and Waymo and Lyft, car companies, um, so vehicle manufacturers, and then even insurance companies. Hey, Pete, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Um, thank you, no, though, Simon, okay. for indulging that question. I appreciate it. Go ahead, so, Pete. Simon, in this example, I, I was still interested in sort of the, the layer of granularity here. So you, you mentioned a couple of times that in this scenario, a web, a web agent is running at a intersection level as opposed to say an individual sensor level so any given any given intersection might have sensors from the individual lights and traffic cameras and and a whole host of other things so if if i'm right about that if the web agent runs at an intersection level where is that agent physically running is it somewhere there on the actual intersection on one of the arm devices cool so um Typically, in any deployment, a web agent would represent some source of data. You can arbitrarily aggregate those as you see fit. But no, there's no requirement in terms of physical location in terms of runtime. So one of the beautiful things about Swim is it makes all infrastructure just go away. So a typical Swim deployment is, I guess, smears compute between the physical edge and the cloud, a bit like you smear peanut butter on your toast. So most frequently, we would have a couple of instances running in a city data center, but we have a few experimental instances where we're out in cabinets on the street corner, but we really don't care because Swim combines all runtime instances that are involved in some project in a deployment into a single computing mesh. And these web agents run anywhere. And the reason that Swim can allow them to run anywhere, and indeed it moves them between uh, physical instances at runtime, is that every web agent, just like a human, I guess, in a browser clicking on links in Facebook or LinkedIn, every web agent is accessible via a URI. Okay, so its handle, as it were, its object reference is a URI. 
and Swim takes care of all notions of routing traffic between uh, web agents, independent of where they're located. Okay. Now, there's another part of that, and, and this dovetails nicely into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. So there's another part of this paper that talks about this new protocol that you created uh, that you piggybacked on top of HTTP called WARP. Yes. So uh, HTTP is just the web protocol. Everybody knows it. So, right. Uh, so what happens in SWIM is that um, there is this model, this graph is being built. And it's persisted in every node, but persistence is not the goal. It's persisted after the fact. Now, in many architectures, so for example, if you looked at Uber, they use PubSub as the mechanism for distribution of information between applications right. and components. In SWIM, the graph that we're building is the mechanism. Okay. And so this notion is that these web agents link to one another based on interest. So, for example, proximity being a notion of interest. And so um, the action of uh, me linking to you means that whenever you change any in-memory state, I see it in real time. And the protocol used to transfer state in real time is warp. Notice there's a fundamental difference between this and other message passing protocols, which is that, that instead of a request response or a subscription requiring a message to be posted by the sender, whenever any in-memory state changes, SWIM knows that there is a subscriber that is interested, that has registered interest in that change, and it just sends the data. Okay, so you get Essentially, the model between multiple instances is eventual consistency, but it's actually real-time consistency subject right. to the latency between the instances. So and it kind of sounds like it's an automated pub-sub model based on where the different web agents sit in the graph relative to each other. Is that close? Yeah, bingo. Yeah, bingo. But also, there is no explicit pub. So if you are... Right, right. It's, it, it, I said like. That's what that was the like that. The like yeah. part of that that I meant. Yes, that's absolutely right. And cool. so it's, it's massively efficient and we're subject really only to latency between um, instances. Now, there is another key efficiency gain, which um, I think we should point out. We could implement an, an IoT style application using something like Lambda or serverless. The key problem with that architecture, the cloud architecture for dealing with this stuff, is really REST and database centricity in terms of key abstractions of cloud computing. Right. And REST or statelessness is fabulous because it allows, it's simple, it allows anybody to do anything and so on, and it's allowed the cloud to scale. But it, what it really does is it leads to long delays. So if you look at Lambda, for example, you're looking at about half a second before your code starts to run. And typically, the first thing you do is throw the new value. Well, you get the old value from a database, do some compute, and then store the new value. So probably per event, you're looking at 800 to 900 milliseconds. <clears throat> sure. So sure, the cloud can deal with that because there are lots and lots of computers. But ultimately, per event, you're wasting four billion CPU cycles at the edge, okay? Because the edge CPU is running at about the same clock speed. And in four billion CPU cycles, we can do a lot, okay? So- Yeah, interesting. 
it's just tremendously wasteful to use these abstractions where statelessness and lookups always cause delay. Um, so this is not network latency dependent. It's really about the latency of of code lookups and, and actually re recovering state from databases and so on. So typically, um, in, so for example, to go back to Palo Alto, an inference cycle is 19 milliseconds, which is about half as long as it would take a packet full of data to get to AWS. Wow, there, that inference cycle takes 19 milliseconds, and is that with right. the web agent in, in like the Palo Alto data center, or is that with the web agent in a cabinet at the same intersection? Oh. It's um, so it, in literally in Palo Alto, the um, the model gets built on spare x86 CPU cycles on their current traffic management server, and the learning and prediction cycle is done on point two of an instance in Azure. It's really easy. Oh, I see. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. So it all it all ends up in this case. So, so that 19 milliseconds includes the networking round trip between the intersection and the and that spare x86 CPU cycle doing the actual inferencing in the Palo Alto's physical Correct. data center, some, somewhere within the city limits. Yep. Interesting. So, again, to come back to my starting point, you know, there are some abstractions which made the cloud a wonderful place, and they are you know, statelessness and databases and everything else, and the really availability of abstractions which make it easier for programmers to use without having to understand infrastructure. And the cloud scales wide. That's all beautiful. You don't have to worry about anything. But a consequence of using cloud only and these restful database-centric abstractions is that we waste a ton of available resources at the edge. Right. Very cool. I guess the last question I had for you is, we obviously have been spending a lot of time talking about the, the traffic use case. What are some other use cases that you've had su some success in the same style modeling? So we do um, essentially second-by-second -second prediction for machines which are doing and so these pick-and-place machines place chips on computer boards as they're being manufactured. And we're trying to predict when a machine is about to make a mistake and require servicing on a second-by-second -second basis to save a production run for a particular vendor, saving them you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And each one of these pick-and-place machines got about 600 sensors on it. And we do that in real time, just the edge on an industrial PC. We are used in a manufacturing scenario for aircraft where every part is tagged with an RFID tag to track in real time and place in 3D every single part and then to watch how those parts come together to make manufacture objects. So if I can track where everything is by triangulation of readers, then I can also say to any part, tell me all the other parts that are within three meters of you. And then we can make a real world of a manufacturing scenario in which complex parts come together to make subsystems and so on. So you can talk about, I don't know, wheel subsystems instead of nuts and bolts. We're used to do real-time prediction of 
real-time prediction of load for public utility operators who are uh, delivering electricity consumers based on real-time measurements of demand across the consumer base, taking into account solar, solar production and various other uh, weather and other real-time generation um, capacities and so on that are coming online. We predict back into the distribution network uh, down to the temperature of every one of the transformers so that they can better route capacity into the distribution network. We do urban lighting control where the goal is to give every citizen, every vehicle a well-lighted environment, but to drive the overall lighting down to minimum power at all times when it's not being used. Uh, just to mention a few. Nice. Those are all super cutting-edge kind of things. Thanks for sharing that. They are. And you know what they made me think of as a Southern California resident? Think of all the sensors that are in the, the faults along the state trying to predict earthquakes. Like, it seems like they'd be a good candidate. <laughs> I'd like them to be able to communicate as quickly as possible. Yeah, and, and there the model is fairly complex. And so the key point here is that given a whole bunch of different measurements from different sensors, what does it mean? Yeah. Actually, some, somebody knows that. Somebody who's studied it in great detail and has really built the model. And what we want to be able to do is deliver in real time, deliver these observations to that piece of code and then in real time drive a response, right? And yeah. so Air Swim is a fabric which can do that. Fascinating. We, we make no pretense to being the world's best at the specific analytics tools or techniques that you would want to use for any situation. There's right. a good example of one where it might exist already. But for example, you might want to drive a, a, a pipeline that you had previously built for Spark or something else. SRAM takes care of all the challenges related to state and time and does it very simply and then can drive those existing algorithms. That's fascinating. Um, we are running out of time here. Pete, I can let you squeeze in one more question if you have one or I'm no, going to... No, I'm good. This was very fascinating. Thanks so much for the time, Simon. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. So uh, if you would allow me to make a pitch, I, if you want to play, go to developer.swim.ai. All the code is there, and we would love to get your feedback. If you want to see some demos, traffic.swim.ai would show you Palo Alto's real-time state. If you click on the red and green and, and, and yellow bars, you'll see predictive downtimers. If you click, click on the blue dots, you'll see predicted phases of the, of the light. Or transit.swim.ai tracks about a million transit vehicles in the US. As you zoom in, you'll see exactly where they are. Excellent, those are great references. Hey, before I, I, I let you go, Simon, we occasionally ask our guests at the end of the podcast, what drew them into a career in, in technology in the first place? Had you been harboring visions of becoming a firefighter or a landscape architect or a physician and you were suddenly derailed into IT or had you planned it all along? You know, um, I have to confess I'm older than all of you. Um, <laughs> and so I wrote my first compiler on, um, on a spare Univac on punch cards. So uh, it's just fun, right? And, and, and this technology is driving massive change in our lives. And the only thing to do 
if we're going to retain control of it and drive in a positive direction for all of us is to be up there at the bleeding edge. I'll take that. That's a terrific answer. Thank you again for joining us today, sir. We've enjoyed the conversation tremendously, and we welcome you back anytime that uh, you would like to, to sit down and talk again about what you guys are up to over there. Thank you so much. It was a privilege to join you. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. I hope all is well in upstate Michigan, and I look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.